Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I hope you do. John chapter 4 this morning. I opened them to John chapter 4. So good to see you this morning. I want to welcome those who are joining us via our live stream. We have so many week to week who join us in that way. I want you to know we're grateful that you worship with us. Also want to welcome Reach Church Paola. Uh, Pastor Darren is out this week. He's down in Honduras on a mission trip. It's our, our first mission trip of the year. Uh, first mission trip of 2024. We sent a group down to Honduras. Pastor Jim Fruits with them. And uh, they're doing a great work down there. We got 17 international mission trips planned this year. Sign up for one. Uh, it's fun. ton of fun to go on a mission trip. Be used by God in that way. Go online. Find a mission trip. Be a part this year. You will not regret it. So we want to welcome Reach Paola, also uh, Reach Church DeSoto. I'm grateful that you're joining us in also uh, the venue service right down the hall. A few things on the front end before we dive into God's Word. There's a lot going on. It's the first of the year, and we are hitting the ground running. There's a lot going on. Uh, this week, uh, Upward Basketball's already started. How many of you in this room this morning, how many of you have a child that's participated in Upward? You're coaching, you're volunteering in some way with Upward Basketball. You just raise your hand, raise it up high. Look at all these folks participating in Upward Basketball. Yeah, thank them. Upward Basketball, one of the biggest outreach uh, events we do here at the church. Uh, a good bit of the children who participate, their families have no church home. They're unchurched. And, uh, and so this is an incredible opportunity to reach them with the good news of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about the reaching ministry of the church this morning. That's a good way to get involved. And maybe you said, well, I didn't sign up to volunteer. You can still participate by praying for Upward Basketball. We still have prayer bracelets. Pick up one of those prayer bracelets. Put it in your car. Put it on your wrist. Do whatever you want to. But put it in a place. Put it in your Bible where you can pray. Because that name represents a child that God loves. And we're praying that we come to faith in Christ this year. So you make that a point. Now, a, a whole lot of other things starting up too. Awana is starting up this week. Uh, student ministry is kicking off this week. So Wednesday night's going to start to be a buzz. But then a after that, the following week, all of our adult Bibleship, discipleship, <laughs> Bibleship, discipleship, I'm checking too fast, all right? I got to slow down. Adult discipleship kicks off that following week. So many classes Get plugged in. This place, it's going to be packed out on Wednesday nights. You'll have to get here early for a parking spot. But it's so much fun. I love it when the new year starts and a lot going on. But I also thought, I was, I was looking through the classes this morning and praying for them. There's one class in particular. If you're a, we have a lot of folks who are newer believers, who are new to following Jesus Christ. And some of you may be here and you're like, oh, man, I'm, I'm still investigating what it means to follow Christ. We have a class in particular that I'd like to point out to you. It's called Fundamentals of the Faith. So this is for people who are just beginning their, their faith walk. What are the key beliefs for us as Christians? What does it mean to study the word of God, to know it as God's word? Um, go look at that Fundamentals of the Faith class. Uh, I, think it'd be, I just talked to so many people. They're just following Jesus, or maybe, they're just, maybe they've been away from Christ, and now they're getting plugged back in, and you're wanting to grow. That would be a good place to go and just understand the basics of what it means to follow Christ. But there's a whole plethora of classes Check them out. You can go to the ministries, go to discipleship, and then under there you'll see all those classes. There's men's, women's, all kinds of stuff going on, not just on Wednesday nights, but throughout the week. Get plugged into discipleship. And then finally, I promise you, just got one more plug. Tonight's a business meeting. And I know I've been getting emails from a lot of people. When are we having our next business meeting? Everybody just wants to go to the business meeting. And I plugs. And so here it is. Here it is. You've been waiting on it. I know you've been, 
excited to go. Bill is always anxious for it. He wishes we could do a business meeting every week. He, he gets so fired up about business meeting. We're having one tonight. So much fun. You're going to have a blast here tonight. We're going to worship. We're going to celebrate what God's done. Can I tell you, it's going to blow your socks off. We're going to worship God. He has been so good. You have been faithful to the Lord. God's done some great things. The Chiefs will be winning by 30 um, by that time. So 5 o'clock right here in this room. You can come. You just rejoice. It'll be a great time together. Um, so come tonight if you can at 5. We vote on the budget. All right, so this is important. We can't do nothing until y'all vote on it. That's the way this works. So it's all riding on you. <laughs> if you don't show up, we can't do nothing this year. So let that sit on your conscience for a little bit and find out how much you love Jesus this week. And I'm just kidding, a little bit. John chapter four, well, as we start off the year, it's always important for us to go back and to be reminded of why we exist. Just like any other organization, there's something called mission drift that's out there, and we can get away from what God called us to do. Uh, you've heard me say this before, but my great fear for the church is not failure. My great fear is that we would succeed at the wrong things. And I'm going to tell you, we are constantly being distracted and pushed towards doing things that the Lord never called us to do. And this is true not just for us corporately as a church, but it's for you individually. The great fear is that you get to your end, the end of your life and you'd realize you succeeded at the wrong things. In things that never, Christ never told you to be successful at. And we can talk a lot about all those things that we're not called to do, but what's most important is that we remind ourselves of what we are called to do. What did Christ tell us to succeed at? What is our mission? What's our job description? This is the basis of, this is the final exam. If you're taking a final exam for your student, you know, you want to know what's going to be on the test. There's certain things that you don't need to know because they're not going to be on the final exam. You're going to face, if you know Jesus Christ, there's a final exam. Now, you're not going to be judged on the basis of your sin. Your sin is covered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But your works will be examined. Did you succeed at what Christ told you to do? So then, what did he tell us to do? Well, don't you love this about the Lord? He didn't make this some crazy mystery. He made it abundantly clear. He telegraphed it to us. It's really the, the, the heartbeat of God from Genesis to Revelation. But at the end of the Gospels, the end of every one of the Gospels, Matthew, go make disciples. Mark, uh, go into all the world and preach the good news. Uh, Luke, repentance and faith shall be proclaimed in his name to all the earth. John, as the Father sent me, so send I you. And just for good measure, the book of Acts. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, in the remotest parts of the world. You read those first four books of the Bible and you are inundated with a message of your mission that God has given to us. If you want to summarize it, we call it the Great Commission, you can summarize it in two words. Make disciples. That's it. Summarize it in two words. The Great Commission, we talked a lot about going and all those other things, but there's only one command in the Great Commission. Make disciples. But then the question becomes, what's a disciple look like? Would we know one if we saw one? So what are we trying to produce? If we're called to make disciples, what does a disciple look like? If we're going to put a, a man on the cover of Discipleship GQ. You think immediately, Bill Shiflett, don't you? You think right there. Like one of those poses. 
But what does that man look like? If, if, if we're called to make a disciple, what does it look like? Well, again, don't you love this? Jesus didn't leave us to our own devices to try to figure it out. He told us what a disciple should look like. He tells us in the Great Commission. Go make disciples. What does that involve, Jesus? Well, here, I'll tell you. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Number one, make sure they're deeply committed to Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is all about. It's a public confession. You just saw it. It's about a person who says, I love Jesus and I don't care who knows about it. Now, you've heard me say this a lot, but Christianity is personal, but it's not private. You can't keep it quiet. I'm reading right now about the persecuted church in North Korea. And they say it's really hard to be a Christian in North Korea. You know why they say it's really hard? Because we can't help but talk about what we've come to know. And if we talk about it, we get in trouble. And guess what? They just keep getting in trouble because you can't shut them up. That's a believer. Somebody who comes to know what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. And they love Jesus and they want to be with Jesus and they want to tell people about Jesus. So the first thing, we want a person who's deeply committed. Are they serious enough about this that they're willing to go on record before the world and say, I love Jesus? Secondly, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Notice they're teaching them not to know everything, but to obey everything. It's a reminder, we are not a seminary. We're not just trying to fill your heads full of knowledge. If we just fill your heads full of knowledge, you know what people who have a ton of knowledge have a tendency to become? Arrogant people. You ever met an arrogant Christian? They got a ton of knowledge, but they don't look anything like Jesus. And it's called lacking integrity. That our belief must match our behavior. There must be a transformed life. Listen, if all of our doctrinal purity, and believe me, we believe in doctrinal purity. But if all of our doctrinal purity doesn't lead us to broken hearts for a lost world and a deep passion to share the gospel with those who don't know him, we've missed the mark. We've missed the mark. And so we're trying to produce not just information, but transformation. We want to see people transformed by the gospel and the knowledge of God's word. And so we're deeply passionate here. You hear us talk about it all the time about getting you to a place where you can know, study, read, and apply God's word in your daily life. We believe there's some skills to doing that. And so we, we are really passionate. That's what discipleship is all about, getting you in small groups and helping you know, read, study God's word on your own so that you're not constantly having to wait on a teacher to tell you about God's word. You can actually say, that's one of my deep passions when I preach. It's every week when I pray. God, I pray that I would give them enough of your word and its beauty and its glory that they'd have a desire to study it on their own. And so we want you to study God's word and then be able to apply it in your life. Confident. So committed, confident, no study, apply God's word. And then the final part is creative. It's intrinsic to the Great Commission. Because he's telling the disciples who will go out and make other disciples. So we're creating disciples who create disciples. Reproducing disciples. For far too long, in so many ways, we have sold the church a bill of goods. That the idea is, leave it to the professionals. And it's a lie. And it's not the Great Commission. 
Listen, I am, I, listen, I, I gotta be making disciples. I gotta be evangelizing the lost. But here's what I know. In so many ways, I'm not nearly as effective as what you could be. Because I go out and I have a conversation with somebody. Strike up a conversation with somebody. You know eventually what the question's gonna become? What you do for a living? I got to the point where I tell them I'm in education now. Because you tell them you're a pastor, they automatically tune you out. Why? Because in the back of their mind, they're thinking, you get paid to sell this stuff. I think, they get, think we get paid on commission. I, I really think a lot of people think that. <laughs> Listen, our passion is to see you get in the game. We're not about a ministry of addition. A ministry of addition is where a few people do a lot of the work. And you don't get very far with that. God called us, Christ called us to a ministry of multiplication where each of you become a reproducing center. You become an evangelistic center in your life. And so you need to know this. You come to Lenexa Baptist, we're gonna push you to moving from a place where you become a, from, from where you're, you, you move from being a consumer to a contributor. You get to a place where you take off your bib and you put on an apron. And you're not just sitting and soaking, but you actually start serving and being a part of God's purposes in this world. It always reminds me, old uh, OU football coach Bud Wilkinson, he was asked one time, what has college football contributed to the discipline of fitness and exercise? You know what he said? Absolutely nothing. He said, you know what a college football game is? It's 22 guys who desperately need rest being yelled at by 45,000 fans who desperately need exercise. Folks, if we're not careful, that'll become the church. You know what I've learned is being gut level honest with you? The people in the church who often are the most critical are the consumers. All they're thinking about what the church can give them. What are you giving me? But listen, you become a contributor, you become a worker. You ain't got enough time to think about what you're not getting. You just want to get in the game. That's the beauty of Christianity. God says, you get to get in the game. Oh, and we're passionate about it. We're deeply passionate about moving you to a place where you get to participate in God's mission. So, committed, competent, creative. That's what a disciple looks like. How do we accomplish this? We, here at Lenox Baptist, we call it reach, teach, and unleash. Reach so the lost are found, teach so the founder equipped, and unleash so the equipped are engaged. That's, that's kind of how we word it. And what we're gonna do over the next three weeks is we're gonna talk about each element of that. And we gotta start with reaching because if you're gonna succeed in any other area of the Great Commission, it's gotta start with a passion to reach the lost. And the church has to have a passion to reach the lost. And if there's a passage in God's word that teaches us about the teaching ministry or the reaching ministry of Jesus more than any other passage, it has to be John chapter four. A lot of places we could go to, but I believe John chapter four teaches us so much. Uh, uh, you wanna know the evangelistic style of Jesus? Here it is. You can find out how Jesus evangelized. In fact, you get another example. If you read John chapter three, you get Nicodemus. And then you get a Samaritan woman. You get Jew and Gentile. You get educated, uneducated. You get religious. You get outcast. And he gives you a picture of evangelism with religious people and with irreligious people. And you can see how he did it. It's an amazing story. I'm gonna give you a little bit of overview, then we're gonna look at the latter portion of this and how Jesus explains it to his guys. But we gotta know the context. Imagine this, this woman 
I spent so much time studying this, not enough time to go into all the detail, but this woman gets 20 minutes in a one-on-one conversation with Jesus. How many of you would love to have 20 minutes in a one-on-one conversation with Jesus? Jesus has been walking with his guys, and don't you love it? In verse four, if you'll see there, John 4, we're gonna read a a section of this, but bear with me. I gotta just overview some of this. Verse four, I love this. It says he had to go to Samaria. He had to go. He was compelled. Do you know Jesus, he left the glory of heaven for this woman. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's not just about the world. You have to make it personal. It's not just that God so loved the world, it's that God so loved you, that he gave his one and only begotten son, that if you'll believe in him, you'll not perish but have it everlasting. For, for Christ did not, for God did not send Jesus in the world to condemn you, but that you might be saved through him. He came for you, he came for this world. Uh, woman, don't you love this? She's not looking for Jesus, but Jesus left glory looking for her. I think that's all of our story. If we're honest, we weren't looking for Jesus, but he came looking for us. He had to go to Samaria. He goes to Samaria, brings his guys. They've been walking for four or five hours. They're noon, scorching heat. Jesus sends his guys. They're all hungry. Go get something to eat. Jesus, they go to get something to eat. Jesus is sitting there by a well. And if you know your Old Testament, amazing things happen at wells, don't they? And this is Jacob's well. This has huge significance Amazing things happen at wells. I wonder what Jesus was thinking as he was sitting by that well. I wonder if he didn't think about Rebecca. Remember Eliezer, Abraham's servant, sends him to that well. And there she is, Rebecca. You remember Eliezer? And what is the first thing that Eliezer asked Rebecca? Would you give me something to drink? What is the first thing Jesus will say to this woman? Give me something to drink. I think he was thinking about Rebecca. You remember Rebecca didn't just give Eliezer something to drink. She watered his camels. That's how he knew. But in other words, the the wells were places where the patriarchs and the fathers went to woo wives. And here is the greater patriarch, Jesus, the son of God, wooing his bride. She represents the Gentiles. She represents us. He woos her to himself. So he's sitting there and probably thinking about Jacob's well and this figure emerges on the horizon. She begins to walk towards him. She shows up, it's midday. She comes probably because of her sinful lifestyle. She doesn't wanna be around other women. She doesn't wanna be confronted. She doesn't wanna talk to them. She comes in the middle of the day. No women came in the middle of the day. It was when the sun was scorching hot. You don't carry water in the middle of the day. You come early in the morning or late in the evening. She comes there because she wants to be all alone. Can you imagine how many times other people saw her walking to that well all alone and nobody came to help her? Nobody met her there. But today, in the midst of her shame and her guilt, somebody meets her there, somebody who loves her. Jesus is there and he asks her to give him something to drink. And it's very, very uh, apparent she didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. She didn't want anything to do with Christ. She doesn't think she needs Jesus. How many of you, prior to faith in Christ, you didn't want anything to do with Jesus, nor did you think you wanted him? because you didn't think you needed him. So here she is, I, what are you doing with me? I'm, I'm a woman, you're a man, I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. We don't talk to each other. What are you doing talking to me? I think she wants to say incognito. I don't want to talk to anybody, I just want to get my water and I want to go back home. But don't you love this about Jesus? He ain't gonna give up on her. 
And he says to her, if you knew who was asking you for a drink of water, you'd be asking me, and I'd give you living water springing up to eternal life. <laughs> she knew. But she doesn't understand, does she? She doesn't understand spiritual things. Nicodemus was educated and religious. Jesus said, you gotta be born again. He didn't understand that, did he? Spiritual things to the non-believer don't make any sense. Until what? Until God pulls back the blinder. It's all nonsense. It's all foolishness. But she hears enough to know, you know what? I really don't like coming to this well in the middle of the day, every day, to get water. And So if you got water that springs to eternal life that satisfies, I think I'll take some of that. I'm a little bit interested. Now she's got an interest in spiritual things, and at least to some extent. And then what does Jesus do? Like a good surgeon, he begins to pull out the scalpel. And you know what he does? Go call your husband. Oh, now we just got personal, didn't we? When you're a non-believer <laughs> and Jesus starts to get personal with you, initially it's offensive, isn't it? Which is a, sh- a sure sign of spiritual sickness when you start to get defensive, when Jesus starts to poke around in areas of your life that are personal to you. And know this, Jesus doesn't take joy in exposing our sinfulness, but he knows until we see the depth of our need, we won't want a savior. You gotta know you're a sinner before you know you need a savior. And so he points her to the depth of her sin. And she gets defensive, justifies, I don't have a husband. <laughs> she doesn't know who she's talking to. And Jesus responds to her, you're right, you don't, you don't have a husband. You've had five. And the one you're with now, he's not your husband. Now she's deeply offended. And, but she's not gonna give up without a fight. So guess what she decides to do? Let's just change the subject. Let's stop talking about my husband's. Let's stop talking about my personal life. And let's, stop, let's talk about deep spiritual things. You guys worship on this mountain. We worship on that mountain. It's all subjective. You ever heard that argument? It's all subjective. You do your little deal. I'll do my little deal. And Jesus isn't going to let it go. He says to her, all the symbols of worship are being fulfilled in me. And it's not about man seeking God. It's about God seeking man. These are the worshipers that God seeks. Well, she's now put off even further. And she just ends with, I think, uh, an idiom, a common idiom of the day. Well, when Messiah shows up, we'll know everything. (laughs) When Messiah comes, it'll all be clear. And what does Jesus do? He looks at her and says, I am he. And just like that, God peels back the blinders. She's seen the depth of her sin. She's been coming to that well day in and day out to satisfy her earthly needs, and it's never satisfied. That's why she's got to keep coming back day in and day out. And now she's come to the fountain of living waters, and she's found satisfaction. She's been changed. How do we know she's changed? Because you can see the transformation. I love the details that John adds. It says she left her water pot. Isn't that a unique little detail that John leaves in? She left her water pot. Why? Because she has come to the fountain of living waters and she's finally found satisfaction. In fact, it's neat. She's had five husbands, the one she's with, so she's been with six men. And Jesus is the seventh man. Seven, the number of completeness. She's found fulfillment in Jesus. She leaves her water pot, she goes back to the city, and revival's gonna break out. 
Revival breaks out on the basis of one sinful woman who's come to faith in Christ, who's been transformed by the gospel. She goes back and she tells them that he knows every. She brings up her sinful past. Do you think this woman ever went back to the city and talked to men about her shameful, sinful past? But now all the shame doesn't matter in the light of the Savior that she's found. It's a powerful picture. You know what you got to do to be a part of God's evangelistic ministry? <laughs> you got to be willing to point people to Christ because she says, is, it, is he not the Christ? Christ means Messiah. She's saying, this is the one we've been waiting on. He's here. You gotta be willing to point people to Christ. You gotta be willing to tell them what he's done for you. You know what she says? He knows everything about me, and yet he's treated me like no one else. Do you know what you find in Jesus? You find a savior who knows everything about you. And he still loves you. That's a savior. She says, I found somebody who knows everything about me, and he loves me. She tells him, and that's what we do. We're people who point people to Christ, and we're not pushy salesmen. That's not what we're to be. You know what we are? We're just satisfied customers. We just tell people, you don't have to, you don't have to be some deep theologian. You know what you gotta tell them? Just tell them what Jesus did for you. That's what she did. Found somebody who knows everything about me and loves me. And then guess what we do? We invite them to come see for themselves. We just extend the invitation. Come see, come see a man. And revival breaks out in this community. But about this time as all this is going on, the disciples show up and they're hungry. If you've been walking for five hours and haven't had breakfast, do you think you're probably pretty hungry? Oh, you're really hungry. You're hangry. That's the disciples. They're hangry. They're not in a good mood. They haven't eaten. And they show up and Jesus seems to be distracted and they want to eat, but it wouldn't look right if they start eating before he eats. And so they kind of get frustrated with Jesus. And the sad part about this is revival is breaking out. A woman has come to faith in Christ. Do you know that the, the scripture tells us the angels rejoice at one sinner who repents? Can you imagine the joy in Jesus' heart in that moment? This woman just trusted in me. Her eyes have been opened. She's gone back to her city and she's told everybody. And they start coming out to him. And the disciples, they're more concerned about sandwiches than they are salvation. They're more concerned with their stomachs than they are about the souls of men and women. Do we ever have that problem? Get so distracted by the junk of this world that we miss the eternal. And Jesus, I can't imagine what must have been welling up in his heart. Great revival's breaking out, and these guys just want to eat a sandwich. And Jesus explains to them, guys, you're missing it. And he tells them the essentials of a reaching ministry. That was the longest introduction you've ever had for a sermon in your life. You're thinking, oh my goodness, he's just getting to the message? Now we're in trouble. Five things, I'm gonna move them through them really quick. These are the five essentials of reaching the lost. Jesus kind of stops in the midst of this revival breaking out and he looks at his guys and says, you're missing it. And here's what you need to know. Five essentials of the reaching ministry. I wanna move through them. But before we do, let's read the passage. Look at verse 27. John chapter four, look at verse 27. You'll see it on your screen if you don't have your Bible with you. It says, at this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, who, what, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So they're not interested in this woman. They're only thinking of themselves. Verse 28, so the woman left her water pot, went to the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city. The whole town, you know, 
You know how hard it is to get people to do anything? This has to be a work of God. The whole town starts coming out, and they were coming in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. We're starving. Rabbi, stop it. Cut it out. Let's eat. Verse 32, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did they? Did somebody run over to McDonald's and get him a quarter pounder? What just happened here? What's he talking about? They are as blind as the woman. They're as blind as Nicodemus. They don't get it. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He says, you know what, you know what feeds me? It's the mission of God. I have a passion for the lost more than I have a passion to eat. Verse 35, do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. The essentials of a reaching ministry. Number one is boldness. Number one is boldness. It's intrinsic to the story, but you see Jesus always pushing his disciples out of their place of comfort and pushing them into places that are difficult, hard, sometimes filthy, sometimes dangerous, so that they might reach the lost with the good news of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it, the disciples would have never chosen to go to Samaria. Samaritans were were. You know, you did everything you could to avoid Samaria. When the Assyrians defeated the north, they didn't just kill them all. They decided to breed them out, and you had a mixture of Assyrians with Jewish faith, and it was just nasty to the Jewish people. They didn't want anything to do with those folks, and Jesus pushes them into a place they wouldn't have normally gone to to reach a person that wouldn't have been reached unless they went You'll see this in Mark chapter five when Jesus takes the disciples to the other side of the sea. It was the area of the Gentiles. It was the place of the Gerasene demoniac. They didn't want to go there. Are you kidding, demoniacs? Let's just reach the nice Jewish people. And Jesus pushes them out. Why? Because he loves the Gerasene demoniac as much as he loved this Samaritan woman. And God, listen to me, if you're going to follow him, he's going to push you outside of your comfort zone to reach people that you wouldn't otherwise go to with a message of hope and salvation that they won't hear unless a preacher is sent. It's a call not to stay in our nice little suburban homes, but a call to go into places and to regions that we wouldn't otherwise go with the good news and the hope of salvation that can only be found in Jesus Christ. It's why I encourage you this year, go on a mission trip. Go on a mission trip. Get outside your comfort zone. Go to a place that you might not otherwise have gone to participate in, with, with Christ in a mission that is bigger than yourselves. We need to be reminded of this too. They're not coming to us. I think the thought of the church for a long time was just put up a building and a side out front and lost people will just wander into your building. If you can create a really cool show for them, they'll show up. Listen to me. They aren't going to wander in these church doors. There was a day and time when people might have just culturally been kind of influenced to go to church. That day in our nation is long past. If we're going to reach them, you're going to have to go to them. 
We're gonna have to get outside these walls. We're gonna have to get outside our comfort zones. We're gonna have to actually go and talk to our neighbors. You're gonna have to have a conversation with your coworker that's bigger than just the work environment. You're gonna might have to ask them how they're doing and how you might be able to pray for them. But we're gonna have to go for them. I think it's a lot like people going fishing and hoping the fish will just jump in the boat. Or it's really worse than that. It's, it's getting a boat and putting it in your driveway and hoping the fish will jump out of the lake and into the road and come all the way to your house without you doing anything. It doesn't work that way. God pushes us to be bold, to go out with the message of hope in the gospel. Second thing is focus. Look at verse 35. Do not say yet there are four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white for harvest. He says, lift up your eyes. The fact of the matter is, and I am just as guilty of this. Listen, this is for me as much as it is for you. But we are so easily distracted with the earthly. Our lives become consumed with just accumulating stuff and working a job to make a little more money to buy a nicer house or to fix up the nice house that we have or drive a little nicer car or wear a little nicer clothes or maybe somehow take a little nicer vacation and our lives are just consumed with the earthly and Jesus is constantly telling us, lift up your eyes. And it might not just be about the amenities of life. Maybe you're just saying, boy, I'm just telling you, I'm just trying to pay the bills. It ain't even about buying a nicer house. I'm trying to pay for the one I got. But listen to me. It's what I said last week. We reverse the order. We start looking at the visible through the invisible instead of viewing the visible through the lens of the invisible. We need to turn the telescope around. What did Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. The idea is Jesus says, you're so, you think, here's I think the mindset of so many people. I'm gonna seek to provide my needs and then if I got a little leftover, I'll do something eternal for God. And Jesus is saying, you got it all wrong. Focus on the eternal and I'll take care of all the other junk. My favorite book of the Bible is the book of Philippians. The master passion of Paul was Jesus. It was his life. In fact, he says, Jesus is in me. He's my life. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I love Jesus. He is my passion. Making him known is my passion. And then he says in chapter two, he's my example. He's behind me as my example. Have this mindset in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he gives the example of Christ. He's my example. He's in front of me. He's my joy. In chapter three, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead. He's everything to me. He's in me. He's my life. He's behind me as my example. He's in front of me. He's my goal. And you say to Paul, listen, if you make Jesus everything, who's going to take care of your daily needs? And you know what Paul says in chapter 4? And my God shall supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Listen, you make Christ your passion. And you make his proclamation your passion. And you might not have everything you want, but I guarantee you'll have everything you need to do God's work. And that's just, we have to remind ourselves of that corporately as a church. My job, my job is not to worry about how many people are sitting in the seats and not how much money we have in the bank, but make sure that we stay focused and faithful to the mission that God has given to us. And if we stay focused on that mission, I'm pretty certain God's got a pretty good track record of taking care of his people when they do his work. Corporately and individually, 
Let's lift up our eyes. Let's have the right focus. Then, then we see urgency. He says in verse 35, the fields are white for harvest. Meaning now is the time. When the field is white for harvest, it means now is the time for harvest. My mom, um, she grew up, her, my grandfather is a peanut farmer in southern Oklahoma. When it was time for the harvest to come in, they dropped everything. They didn't go to school. I think she'd have rather gone to school. But you went and worked in the field because when, when the harvest, when it was time, that was the most urgent thing. She, they knew you only got a window of opportunity to bring in that crop, and when the window opens, you go for it. And Jesus is saying, there's a window of opportunity. Listen to me today. The invitation to come to know Christ is not open-ended. Either we're going to die or Christ is going to return, and there's no evangelism at the gates of hell. Meaning now is the time. Today is the day. We, we're not to put this mission off. That's what he's saying. We're, we're con- it's common thought. Well, I got plenty of time to talk to that person. I got many more years. You don't know that. Uh, one of my greatest, deepest regrets in ministry. Early on, my first church, I um, went to the hospital, went to visit a man. He said, there's a guy down on the lower floor. He's a friend of mine, doesn't know the Lord. I've been meaning to talk to him. Would you go tell him about Christ? Sure, I'll do that. I go down there. The nurses were busy in his room. I had some stuff to, to do that rest of the day. I said, well, I'll come back tomorrow. I went, come back the next day. I go to visit that man. Bustle, craziness in his room. I sit outside, wait in a chair. Pretty soon a nurse comes out. I said, ma'am, could you tell me what, what's going on with the gentleman? She said, well, he just passed away. And I will live with that regret for the rest of my life. You don't know. If God burdens your heart for somebody, today's the day. Today's the day. And it doesn't mean that you go and just start beating them over the head with the Bible. But you need to engage them in some way. God give us a passion, a deep broken heart for the lost. You know, you've heard me say this before. The greatest threat to Christianity is not liberalism. It's not wokeism. The greatest threat to Christianity is Christians who are trying to sneak into heaven without having told anybody about Jesus Christ. This is our job. And listen to me. There's no doubt in my mind, if we got passionate about Jesus, half as passionate as we are about all the other things in our life, and I'm as guilty as anybody, we'd have already won this world over for Jesus twice. We're more willing to talk sports or politics or a politician than we are to speak the name of Jesus. And then we sit back, you know what we have the goal to do? Complain about our day. This world is awful. You know what the world is doing? It's doing what lost people do. It's doing what you would be doing if it weren't for the grace of God in your life. And you know what changed you? I bet it wasn't a politician. And I bet it wasn't a doctor. You know what changed you? Jesus Christ. You know what's going to change them? Jesus Christ. We got the solution. It's so funny. We have the solution to the problems that ail our world, and then we have the audacity to not do what Christ told us to do and then complain about the results. It's time to get busy. We need to have a sense of urgency about us in this mission that God has given us. I know it's a dark day. Do you know where light shines the brightest? 
in the midst of a really dark room. I'm telling you, we have an opportunity. The challenges that we face, they're big. But aren't these the places where God likes to like to do the greatest work? We have an opportunity like never before to shine the light of the gospel. We have an opportunity. This world is searching for hope, fulfillment, and purpose, and meaning. And we have an opportunity like never before to show them and tell them about the hope and the meaning and the purpose and the love that we have found in Jesus Christ. It's an opportunity like never before. I say this often. If you were to stretch out all the generations of Christianity from the very beginning, I'd want to be born right now. Because I believe our challenges present us with the greatest opportunity. Do you believe that today? My goodness, we are the most pessimistic people sometimes. Oh, it's all going down here. Do you believe that today God could bring revival like he did in Samaria? Man, I tell you what, the enthusiasm you just demonstrated right there tells me a lot about where we're at, man. Come on, let's get fired up. God can bring about revival. I guarantee you he can. But we better get fired up about telling somebody about Jesus Christ. There's also joy. I'm skipping the last. Joy. We don't tell, I don't twist your arms. He talks about joy in this. We don't twist your arms to do this because we, oh boy. You, I'm not here to make you feel guilty. I know you think, boy, you're screaming at me a lot. But Do you know why I'm so passionate about this? Because there's no greater joy in all the world than seeing somebody come to faith in Christ. I'm not trying to push you to do something that's hard and mean and it's going to leave you feeling bad at the end of it. I'm pushing you to do this because you want to feel joy and purpose and meaning. Feel the power of God work through you to touch another person's life so that they become reborn by the Spirit of God. You'll get addicted to it. Joy, it takes humility. He says one sows, another reaps. It's all God's work. Uh, the way God has done this mission, he's rigged it in such a fashion that nobody can take credit for except Jesus. We all have our part to play. You, you might be praying for your neighbor. And you might be kind to them and tell them about Jesus and nothing happens. But then later on, somebody comes into their life and God has sown the gospel in you, but they come along and they just... They think, wow, that person just came to faith in Christ. They, they don't know the work that had been done previous. And the fact of the matter is, it's all God's work. If somebody comes to faith in Christ, it's because God works salvation in their hearts. It's Ephesians 3.21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ever think, ask, or imagine, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever. There's only one person who gets glory in the church. Amen? His name is Jesus. We can't take credit for anything. It's ridiculous for any of us to start to think we're something. Jesus gets all the glory because it's all his work. We're just supposed to be faithful. Can I just ask you today, just really briefly, are you praying specifically for anybody to come to faith in Christ right now? Can I just, do you have a relationship with anybody that's not a believer? I think we're getting to a place where we're so, and listen, we need to assemble together as believers. We need to be together because we're gonna need it as the world, the world gets increasingly tough. We, we gotta be together as believers. But listen, we got to engage a lost world. We need to have relationships with people that don't know Jesus. So can I just ask you today, I'm going to challenge you this week, today, this afternoon, this week, write down the names of three people that you're praying would come to faith in Christ. 
And if you don't have three people, you say, well, I don't even know three lost people. Pray that God would give you three people. If you start praying that God will give you three, we- three people, by the end of the week, you'll have 10. And you'll be saying, Lord, stop. I can't take no more. Because, you know, 20%, the statistics show us right now, 20% of Kansas City has no connection or affiliation with any church whatsoever. I'm not even just talking about Protestant evangelical churches. I mean, you're running into lost people every day. Lift up our eyes. Let's be about God's mission. Now's the time. Lord, we thank you that you are so gracious and patient with us. Just like the woman at the well, you came to seek and to save that which was lost. We've come to know you. God, it is, it's amazing that you knew us before the foundation of the world. You knew everything about us, just like that Samaritan woman, and you loved us. You loved us so much that you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins, that we might know you have a relationship with you, be eternally secure, that we might find in you living waters springing forth to eternal life. We have found in you not just hope for eternity, but we have found in you a well of living waters that satisfies like nothing else. And Lord, for those of us that have received so much through faith, Receive this free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, whose lives have been transformed and changed. Lord, it only makes sense that we would be willing to tell others. How could we receive such a gift and not tell anybody? Not tell them that just as we came to know this faith and salvation, they can know you too. Just as we've come to know fulfillment and forgiveness and freedom, they can know it too. Just like that woman. Come see. Come see for yourself. Lord, give us broken hearts for the lost world around us. Help us to see people as you see them. Not as the enemy. Not as some obstacle to be, to be overcome. Not, not to see people as just instruments to be used for our purposes. But to see people as men and women made in your image that you love. May we see ourselves in the lost world around us ourselves prior to faith in Christ and help us to have the boldness and the sense of urgency to tell them about Christ. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, I pray that they would see in this passage how much they, you love them. I pray that you would draw them to yourself and just like that Samaritan woman, you'd peel back the blinders so that they could see the beauty of Christ and come to know you. Lord, we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.